We are live from the great state of Tennessee. I'm your host, Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranoid, the podcast where we break down conspiracy theories, unsolved mysteries, and true crime, and separate fact from fiction. So if you've noticed, now some of you that listen later in the week may not know this, but to my day one listeners, you'll notice that this podcast did drop late. I apologize. I try to always get them done Sunday morning. But had some family obligations. Family always comes first. So I was not able to get the episode in on Sunday. So I'm actually recording today on release day on Monday. Hopefully I can get this released actually on Monday. But for some of you East Coast people, this may actually be a Tuesday release. Like I said, I know a lot of people have their set podcasts that they were listening to on certain days. So I know some of you already have your Tuesday podcast, Wednesday podcast, and today, Monday is usually your day to listen to mine. Hopefully you can still find some room to listen to it later on in the week. Like I said, I apologize. I've been doing really good. I have been doing really good on getting them out, but life happens, things happen. So here it is. I'm getting it out now. Um, it should be updated by the time you see this episode, I'm hoping, but went through, did some editing. Like I said, we've been kind of doing the conspiracy theory and unsolved mystery thing for the most part, but am adding in true crime um, based on feedback and listener volume. A lot of people do like the true crime aspect of it. Um, so I kind of went through and labeled each kind of episode. I would really love it if you listen to every episode, but I know each kind of topic isn't everybody's kind of thing. So hopefully by labeling each episode, you can kind of know, okay, this is the true crime week. This is a conspiracy week, it's unsolved week, whatever it might be. So like I said, if you kind of pick and choose which episodes to listen to, this should make it a little bit easier to filter through the episodes and find the ones that you like. And like I said, today's true crime. So kind of, it's actually a really sad story, but um, an interesting one, nevertheless. So let's go ahead and jump into the actual episode for today. Well, we live in a world, particularly in a country, where shootings are like an everyday thing. Like I said, I'm sure this takes place in other parts of the world, but speaking specifically here in America, these type of situations, whether it be a mass shooting or shooting just between two people, shooting at Kroger, shooter shooting at the gym, just every day, if you actually turn on the news or turn to CNN or whatever channel, there's shootings going on just about every single day in this country. And because of this, a lot of us tend to kind of have that defensive mode when we go out. Like, for example, when I go to a concert or when I go to a movie, I always make sure when I get there, like I'm not like doing it like super hardcore. It's more like just something subconsciously I do now. When I go somewhere, I always make sure I know exactly where the exits are, what's next to me, obstacles, which obstacles. Now, that might sound super weird. Most people aren't like that, I'm assuming. But that's just me mentally. I've always been like that, but especially with the way the world is, I'm like always making sure I'm prepared in case something ever goes down. And unfortunately, even though you do all that sometimes in certain situations, it's still not going to be good enough. And a lot of these cases that we'll go through over the next few months are kind of in that kind of situation. A lot of these is like, there's literally nothing you can do. But regardless, I try to always do whatever I can. And that's always my biggest fear is not necessarily for myself, but for my loved ones, for my family. Like I want to put them in the best situation to be safe. But, you know, you don't want to live your life in fear at the same time. So you don't just want to stay in the house. You want to go out and do things. So 
Like I said, I try to do my part to stay active, live a fun life, but just be aware of my surroundings. And today we're going to go to the city of Las Cruces, New Mexico. Um, and just a very small bowling alley. Um, at the time, Las Cruces, New Mexico had about a population of 50,000. So a lot of you have some small towns you can kind of relate to this. Your local small town usually has one Walmart, one movie theater, one bowling alley. Well, this was it. And we're in the we're in the year 1990. And like I said, we're in a very tall, very tiny bowling alley. And basically, not the middle of nowhere, but a very small town. And it's just the beginning of a regular day. Except everybody kind of wakes up. Really don't want to go to work, most of us. But we, we get up, we go to work, you open, you know, depending on what kind of job you have, retail or a job like this, you know, you're assigned to open a facility. And you're not looking forward to it, but you go, you do it, and you kind of just go on with your routine. And we have a few people that show up that morning for their regular routine. Regular routine. But unfortunately, for some of them, it would be the last thing that they ever do. And for a few of them, it would be something that would haunt them forever. This is the story of the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. I said, we're here on February 10th of 1990. Um, this is a Saturday. So I'm assuming in Bowen Alley, no matter how small town is, Saturday is probably their biggest day of the week, I would assume. And we have 34-year-old Stephanie Sanak. Um, she arrives in the place called Las Cruces Bowl. Um, she's the manager of the Bowen Alley, but she's also the daughter of the owner of the Bowen Alley, and his name is Ronald Sanak. And with her on this day, uh, her 12-year-old daughter, um, her name is Melissa. She's She brings her daughter, Melissa, and Melissa's 13-year-old friend, whose name is Amy Hauser. Um, from what we know, Melissa and Amy were close friends, and they basically worked in the Bowling Alley's daycare section, which is very unique. I've never seen a Bowling Alley with a daycare um, section, but... So basically, we got a 12-year-old, 13-year-old best friend that basically try to help out in the daycare section of the bowling alley. Because this was a Saturday, it was a good chance for them to get out the house and help out. Um, not much else to do. So you're in a small town, and I'm sure their family probably required them to do it. So we're about, I'm assuming the bowling alley opens at eight. I'm not sure, but it's about eight o'clock in the morning. Both Melissa and Amy were with Stephanie in the manager's office. And it says Stephanie's there preparing to open the day, uh, going through the receipts from the night before and counting the drawers, all the stuff you do for opening. So I'm assuming if it's eight, maybe they don't open until nine or 10. I'm not sure, but you know, anyone that's ever worked retail, worked in any place that handles money, you know, the manager comes in the next morning Counts the money and all that good stuff. So that's what's going on at about 8 o'clock. Um, so we got the 12-year-old Melissa and 13-year-old Amy are basically kind of just sitting and waiting, um, trying to kill time. Obviously, there's no cell phones to play with, no iPad to play with. So they're basically just looking for a way to move around. 
And then the two people they crossed paths with early in the morning were Steve Sinek and Ida Hogan. Um, Steve Sinek was the brother of Stephanie, um, who we just talked about, the opening manager. And she's also the uncle of 12-year-old Melissa. He wasn't working this morning, but he had dropped by basically to pick up some stuff. Um, and I guess redo some stuff from last night. I'm not sure. But just remember that name, Steve. Um, we'll get more information on him going later. Ida Hogan, the other girl, the other person that the two girls encountered, was the 33-year-old snack cook at the Bowen Alley. She spent hours before the opening, obviously, prepping food for the day. Um, Saturday's a busy day, obviously, so she's preparing for a lunch rush. If you didn't know, the food at Bowen Alley is not really made to order. That pizza that you order has probably been sitting there for a while. I'm not bashing them or anything. But it takes a while. You know, we got one cook for a bowling alley, so she's getting everything ready for the day. So like I said, this is about 8 o'clock in the morning when all this is happening, and their lives would shortly be changed forever right after this. Because at around 8.20, two strange men <clears throat> stormed into the Los Cruces bowling alley. <clears throat> the interesting thing about this is that neither the men were wearing masks or gloves. So... They're not doesn't I'm assuming they're amateurs. I don't know how they go about this. Not having any kind of face covering or nothing. They're just going there like normal. But they stormed in the bowling alley through the unlocked door. Um, not like they even had to sneak in because I'm assuming they said the bowling alley is just about to open. So they were able to get in pretty easily. One of the men was holding a 22 caliber pistol, which he raised at Ida, the cook who was working at the kitchen. He demanded the woman head towards the manager's office where his partner ran into the two girls, Melissa and Amy. It wasn't until Ida, Melissa, and Amy were ordered into the manager's office that Stephanie even knew what was going on. So now the two gunmen demanded, now all four women are together, and the two gunmen basically demanded the four women to lie down on the floor. Um, the men did promise to let the women go if their demands were met, but they didn't really said it seems like amateurs or something else was going on. So um, it took like minutes to actually get to the point. They were rummaging through the room like they were looking for something specific and not necessarily as they were looking for money. Um, it just looks like they were looking for documentation, paper or something, which we'll get to here in a little bit. So after about a few minutes of this, which I'm sure to the people that, or sitting there probably felt like hours. They began demanding access to the safe, which only the manager, Stephanie, could open. So Stephanie opens the safe for the gunman, allowing them to access thousands of dollars. Um, we don't know the exact amount, but it's estimated between four to $5,000. Um, but the men did leave some of the cash behind, um, which, said, which makes us think they weren't actually there for the cash. They kind of did it just because they needed some, possibly, but that wasn't the exact motive they had because they left oh, some of the money there. So after they gathered their cash, they seemed like they were done and were ready to make their getaway, but in the confusion, their robbery was interrupted by someone else entering through the bowling alley um, through the main entrance that they had just walked through because at the door was Steve Turan, 
Um, he was a 26-year-old mechanic that worked at the Bowling Alley. Um, basically, his job was to fix the machines and make sure that the lanes kept operating by themselves. Um, from what we know, Steve was a very loving but very stern, very kind of hard-headed young man. Um, he was known for having a very tough, rigorous moral code, basically always telling people to do the right thing. Um, and it makes sense because he had recently attended a uh, military university. I'm not sure which one um, could have been. I don't think it was West Point, but basically a West Point type school. And he was in the New Mexico National Guard. He was planning to become a police officer in the near future. Um, so just everything said military, wanted to be a police officer, tough moral code. Like from everything we can see, he's actually a very good person, um, had a plan for him and his family. Um, in addition to being married, he had two children, his six-year-old stepdaughter, Paula Hogan, um, and his two-year-old daughter, Valerie Turan. So on this Saturday, um, February 10th, unfortunately, Steve had been unable to arrange childcare for his two daughters. His wife, named Audrey, was attending class at the nearby university. Um, so Steve basically was in charge of watching the girls. He was unable to arrange a sitter. So he basically, except they have a daycare, which we think would be nice. So he arranges them to bring them to work and drop them off at the daycare area. So just after 820, he enters into the Las Cruces bowling alley with six-year-old Paula and two-year-old Valerie. And as they walk through the unlocked front doors, they're surprised to see nobody like in the lobby, in the kitchen. He's confused what's going on. So Steve begins to walk towards the manager's office. And he basically, he walks right into this crime scene. Um, the two armed men basically began fighting with Steve. And within moments, they overpower, overpower him. And we're talking about two against one. So they were able to overpower him. Him and his daughters were cornered along with the other victim. And so now there are seven hostages in total inside this office. Um, but for whatever, I'm not exactly sure what happened. I guess we can kind of get into that later. Um, but I guess we're assuming Steve was just not going. He just was not about to just sit there and let this happen. I'm assuming he kept fighting because shortly after this, the two gunmen open fire on the victims, shooting each of the seven hostages multiple times. Each of the victims were shot in the head, um, execution style, including the teenage girls, Melissa and Amy, as well as Steve's daughters, Paula and Valerie. So no one in the room was spared, and the gunmen left the room believing that they had killed everyone that was inside. But before the two gunmen left the bowling alley, they began gathering some papers on top of the office manager's office desk, which they set on fire. Um, from what we gather, it is believed that they were hoping to destroy any evidence of having them be there. But said over the next several minutes, like said, they set a few papers on fire, but the fire began to grow all throughout throughout the bowling alley. So with all the victims we assume to be dead. The fire starts and the gunmen get away um, with like I said, somewhere near about $5,000. And it appears that they're going to get away with this pretty easily. But 
At around 829, Las Cruces emergency dispatchers received a 911 call, and this was from 12-year-old Melissa Repass. And we're going to take a quick listen into her 911 call. So as sad and as unfortunate as all of this is, it is pretty amazing. So we're talking about a 12-year-old that just witnessed, she was shot five times, witnessed her mother and her best friend all get shot. Um, she was able to basically go back to what she had been taught a few weeks ago, and that was to call 911. And so we're not talking about minutes or hours later, like the moment she basically kind of got consciousness, she knew to call 911. And this quick thinking not only saved her life, but it saved two others as emergency services were able to arrive to the crime scene in a little over a minute, which is pretty amazing. But um, like I said, we're talking about a very small town, so I'm assuming everything was really close, especially knowing this is like probably the main venue of that city, assuming they're pretty close by. But to get there in just over a minute is pretty amazing so said so police officers and firefighters arrived and they went into the manager's office and tried to do what they could because of the fire that had started um basically the first responders uh asked for immediate backup and then began getting all seven of the bodies inside the manager's office out of the lobby in and while they can take care of the fire once they were out they began they were able to begin treating each of the victims most like i said um were unconscious and suffering from injuries that they just unfortunately were not going to recover from. But 12-year-old Melissa Repass, her 34-year-old mother, Stephanie Cenac, and the 33-year-old cook, Ida, were all stabilized and rushed to Memorial General Hospital, which was right down the road. Valerie, Valerie Turan, the two-year-old daughter, also went with them, but Unfortunately, she did not make it and passed away in the hospital later that day. The other three victims, 26-year-old Steve Turan, his six-year-old stepdaughter Paula Hogan, and 13-year-old Amy Hauser were all pronounced dead at the scene. Paramedics and EMTs said they did what they could, but it was basically they were, the gunshot was basically instant, um, instant death for them. Firefighters were able to quickly drown out the fire inside the manager's office, but basically the bad part is, like I said, they set everything on fire to try to destroy evidence, and then 
the firefighters basically coming in to spray it down basically destroyed any other evidence. They basically washed away um, anything that was left. So hypothetically, if something was burnt, you could still maybe be able to salvage some of it if only top of it was burnt. But we're talking about fire hoses, like not just small little water hoses. Like we're talking about the giant water hoses that take out fire. So that basically is destroying any kind of paperwork that is in there. And that would be a huge issue for the investigators going forward. But in the meantime, police officers basically began coordinating with Border Patrol. They said, we're about, you know anything about geography? They're only about 30 minutes from the border. So um, the Mexico border. So they start working with Border Patrol, um, establishing roadblocks and keeping out an eye out for local suspects. Um, if you think it was, if you could hear, hear the phone call, uh, 12-year-old Melissa Repass had identified the victims as black men, but eventually, um, after doing some sketching and talking and getting more information, police believed that the suspect were Hispanic men with dark complexions who might be planning to leave the area or, as they kind of hypothesized, leave the country in the very near future. And as you can imagine, these events from February 10th shocked not only the city, but basically the entire region for months, years, and even decades. I mean, we're not talking, we'll talk about the family, but just friends, anything in general, basically, I mean, anyone in general that knew them, like, I mean, this shocks you. I mean, death is always terrible, but a situation like this, when you're talking about just such young lives that were taken away, like this, this is one that, one of those you just don't get over. So, like I said, um, the press, which loves having their little names, that's when they dubbed it as the Las Cruces Bowen Alley Massacre. And like I said, this massacre took four victims, Steve Turan, Paula Hogan, Valerie Turan, and Amy Hauser. Amy's parents lost their 13-year-old. From what they had said in interviews, she was such a fun-loving and heartwarming presence in all their lives. And she loved to sing. Um, to, I mean, I'm assuming most, like just like any 13 year old, full of energy, full of adventure that they never got to experience. Meanwhile, Audrey Turan, the widow of Steve and mother to six year old Paula and two year old Valerie, had lost her entire family in one day. And like I said, it's tough enough. Like I said, I have never been in this situation before, think, thankfully. But like I said, death is always terrible. And it makes me think kind of back to the Kobe Bryant situation, like losing the Kobe, losing Kobe Bryant obviously hurts, especially as a basketball fan, it hurts. But the thing that really got you was when his daughter was involved. Um, so Kobe, though he was still very young, he got to live obviously a very luxurious, very good, very fulfilling life. But when you see it happen to the kids, it just it seems to hit you to a little bit different. So we're talking about a six year old and a two year old, a mother that was just getting, you know, the two year olds probably not even talking yet. The six year old is getting ready to go to grade school soon. I mean, it's just it's tough to think about. And uh, there's then there's the guilt, which there should be no guilt, but it's just natural. You're going to have guilt. OK, well, what if I could have watched them? What if I could have taken off and watched them? I mean, because they weren't even supposed to be there. 
someone's supposed to be watching them, but the babysitter fell through. Like there's just so much guilt and remorse that goes into this. I mean, I just, I honestly can't even imagine. As far as the other victims that did survive, Stephanie Sunak, Ida Holgan, and Melissa Repass, obviously they would be facing tons of issues the days, weeks, and months after. Um, we're just talking about just trauma. Like, well, they're obviously are going to have brain injuries, probably some memory loss, actual, I don't know exactly where they were shot, but just bodily injuries that they're going to recover from. But just the trauma of it, if experiencing that is something like that just, I would assume never, ever, ever goes away. Um, obviously the funerals and memorials were arranged in the whole town at this time. It's a very small town. The whole town comes and shows their love and support. But from there, once the goodbyes are said and the memorials are done, it's time for the Las Cruces Police Department to jump into action. We, we got to get justice for this. They just can't get away with this. Um, and every local police officer, every local detective is being called in. And there's basically no days off. Like something like this just doesn't happen in small cities like this. So there's no one sitting at home. There's no days off. There's basically this is a all hands on deck situation. So now it's time to dig in and basically do the detective part of this case. I mean, we got... You got the details, but now it's actually time to put things together and for these detectives to figure out what's going on. Now, like what we said, the main problem is just about all the interactions between the gunmen and the victims had happened inside the manager's office. So not only did the fire burn a lot of it away, but the burning of the water that got rid of the fire also destroyed a lot of it. So the firefighters arrived, they inadvertently basically diluted a lot of the evidence that remains. So basically, I mean, they're starting with nothing. Um, Detective Mark Myers um, says, direct quote, it was a very complicated crime scene. They lit the office on fire. That's a clear indication they were thinking about destroying evidence they had left behind. They weren't going to leave any witnesses, no matter how young. I have no doubt when they left, they thought everyone in there was dead. and. In the also in the time since the massacre has happened, police officials has confirmed that they have found forensic evidence inside the manager's office. They also stated that this evidence has been submitted to state databases for analysis and further testing. But from what I know from doing any kind of you know small research, they have refused to reveal exactly what they have found. Um, so this detective did say that they recovered fingerprints. But as I said, it's a bowling alley. You can expect to find that. Tons of people have been in there. Tons of people have probably been in the office. So we're not talking about just fingerprints on bodies. We're talking about fingerprints on desks, on walls, on paper. Like that's such circumstantial evidence because it was probably the main attraction in town. So many people have been in there. So picking up fingerprints, like I said, is not a very big it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a big deal but it's not the end all be all when you're talking about a popular spot like this and for those of you like say we're digging more into true crime as time goes on but me being a true crime nerd and any of you that have ever listened to true crime over the years you know that basically dna is very very new like in 1990 dna didn't really mean much getting hair follicles and all that stuff like it helped 
but the, the type of DNA research, the type of DNA data that we're able to pull now is nothing compared to how it used to be. Even the early 2000s wasn't that great. So back in 1990, like I said, they don't really have much to run on. They were able to find a couple of witnesses, one who claims to have heard the shots happening from a nearby business where she said she had been working the morning of. The other witness who also nearby claimed to have seen two men running away from the scene at about the same time that Melissa was making her 911 call. Um, their account would be added to another, um, a man that was close to the crime scene who had left the bowling alley just before the crime unfolded, um, which is something that's interesting. Uh, so it seems someone actually was there before all this happened. And this man is who we talked about earlier, Steve Sanak, who is the brother of Stephanie Sanak, um, the person that, the woman that opened the bowling alley the morning of the attack. Like I said, she, um, on that morning, Steve had stopped by the bowling alley. Like we said, he went to go pick up some stuff and he left just a few minutes before the two gunmen entered the bowling alley. Steve claims that he had seen two Hispanic men walking in the region of the bowling alley. Um, what we can kind of gather from what he's saying, basically headed, they were in the parking lot heading toward the entrance. He claims that one of the men was carrying a briefcase, which he handed to the other as they walked. Steve said he didn't put the pieces together until he learned about the crime but stated that the two men had very distinct feature, features. One was older and one was younger. And basically these descriptions would be the basis of upcoming police sketches. And with these sketches, we have suspect number one, a young Hispanic male between 28 to 34, about 5'10", weighing between 160 and 170, with wavy brown hair and brown eyes, with a mustache and no identical accent. Suspect number two was an older Hispanic male who seemed to be between 48 and 54, about 5'6", 140 pounds, with thinning hair, brown eyes, and who spoke English with a slight accent. And from there, like I said, the sketches are made and they're posted out to the media um, in the following weeks. Based on some additional witness sightings, it's believed the two men fled from the beach from the scene in a green four-wheel drive vehicle, perhaps a van. In the hours after the reporting of the massacre in the bowling alley, said Steve gave his description of these two men to the police. Then a little bit later, he was called to the scene of a police roadblock where a single vehicle on the outskirts of town had been pulled over. Inside the vehicle were four Hispanic men who had thousands of dollars in cash on them. Steve could not identify any of the men as being the ones he had seen earlier, and this group of men were allowed to leave. Now, soon enough, the descriptions of these two men were verified by one of the survivors, Ida Hogan, um, who survived multiple gunshots. She had been present at the bowling alley for the massacre, and of course, and was had a good visuals of them and was basically able to confirm what Steve had said. She believed that she had seen these two men at the bowling alley sometime prior to the shooting in the days, weeks, or months before this crime. She and other employees believed that the men had basically been doing recon, trying to get a feel for the bowling alley in their schedule, the layout, regular staff hours, um, like basically trying to figure out when is the perfect time to 
do something like this. They also believe that the gunman had not gone into the bowling alley simply to rob the place. She later stated that the two gunmen were looking for something else before they went to the safe. So, like I said, all this didn't make sense in the first place. And like I said, they state that they're looking around for something else. So this is more than just a robbery gone wrong. There's something more to this. And it left the detectives completely puzzled. Like I said, these two men go into the bowling alley. They hold seven people captive. Then they eventually make the decision to shoot, to kill all seven victims. They had left with about four to $5,000, but for some reason, they decided to leave money in the safe. So we don't know how much is in the safe. Hypothetically, let's say there's 8000 in the safe. They only stole half the money or something of that. So investigators are able, unable to figure out if this was a planned robbery a robbery gone wrong, or if they just were looking for violence, that could have just been the same. A lot of these psychopaths don't even care about money. They're just looking for violence. Um, it still remains possible that the two men had planned to rob the bowling alley, but then became overwhelmed once they were inside. Uh, there's a good chance they hadn't planned for so many people to be there. Um, that is a very good possibility. Like I said, we're talking, the mechanic walked in with his two daughters, which wasn't, that's three that probably weren't supposed to be there in their recon and their research. It was probably only supposed to be the managers. Cause when you think about it, the manager, Stephanie came with her two daughters cause they had nothing else to do. And then, um, when the other guy comes in with his two daughters, cause they couldn't get babysitting. So there's seven people in there, but they're at the best case scenario in their minds was supposed to be Stephanie, the manager, and Ida, the cook. So in their minds, they're like, okay, well, it's two on two, two men versus two women. That's pretty easy. But all of a sudden, like said there was way more people there, and basically they got overwhelmed. But regardless of that, it's still hard to think that robbery is the only motive. Um but we start to, like I said, they start to do some digging. Shortly after the shooting, rumors began to go around that the owner, the actual owner, Ronald, Ronald Sanok, had some kind of shady business ties. Like I said, these are just rumors, aka conspiracies, but rumors that he's even linked to the cartels, which were obviously, I mean, we're talking about 30, 40 miles from the border. Like, that's not really that far fetched. Tons of people were dealing with shady type. Things with the cartel um, it's still going on now, but especially in the 90s, 80s, drugs rampant. Um, it's a pretty good possibility. So because the gunmen had, had basically um, did an execution style shooting of everyone at the Bowen Alley, including Ronald Sanok's daughter and granddaughter, the police were led to believe that there might actually be some truth to these rumors. So they began to look into Ronald, his family members and other associates um basically they were looking for anything out of the ordinary any numbers that are sketchy but unfortunately all the attempts to investigate ronald led to dead ends um the detective mark that we were talking about earlier says quote we investigated all of those angles at the time thousands and thousands of man hours went into trying to prove these theories but we couldn't prove anything we put Ronald Sanok under a microscope and we couldn't find anything. To date, all we know for sure is that it was a robbery homicide. The police also investigated the other um, son of Ronald, 
Um, his name was R.J. Sanak. Um, they he was involved. They claimed he was involved in some kind of drug activity, but he was also cleared. Um, nothing really linking him to the case. Also had another lead from a woman who claimed that the woman had the claim that two men had stayed with her that fit the description. But she also turned out to be basically someone looking for attention. So said over the next several months, um, it just became apparent that the investigators were no closer to solving the case than they had been from day one. Um, there was nothing. Said people, I mean, they had small leads, people they looked into, but nothing concrete at all. Um, so said they're still stuck thinking maybe this actually was a robbery gone wrong. Just two men with no remorse. Um, that maybe they're actually said sometimes there is no explanation. Sometimes like they just weren't thinking and they left money behind. Um, there's no real explanation um, if you're going to go this route. Now, one of the theories is that a gang had decided to get some revenge on some people in the bowling alley, perhaps friends and family of the owner, Ronald Sanap. Some say it was a business deal that had fallen apart, a drug deal that had gone south. Um, there's a bunch of, say we're talking about right near the border. There's just a bunch of different theories. Um, it's alleged by some that the two gunmen were involved with a regional gang, even hitmen that had been brought in from Mexico. Um, like I said, all these were possibilities because um, they all recall the gunmen looking for something specific in the manager's office. Maybe they were giving the task of bringing something back. Money was like a backup goal for them. But the whatever they were looking for was the main thing. And because of the brutality of the crime, like I said, we're talking execution style murders. Seemed like the shooting of all seven hostages might have been meant to send a message. Maybe a former employee or acquaintance or someone was involved. Like I said, I mean, we're just we're just guessing. We're just throwing out different type of ideas that all the um, investigators would throw. And this was put on everywhere. This episode, this is actually an episode um, I didn't know until I was actually researching this. This was actually an episode um, on the Unsolved Mystery Show. Ends up being on America's Most Wanted. Um, but no more leads, no more nothing. So a lot of times when these type of show, when these type of events go on like a show, they end up getting a lot of traction and more leads. But still, despite this, nothing, nothing came out of this. Um, and it was still to this day had never been solved. Um, Stephanie Sanak, she passed away in 1999 um, due to complications from her injuries. Um, and <laughs> Melissa Rapace is still alive. Um, and Ida Hogan is still alive. Um, obviously still traumatized by this event. But um, a lot of the ones, but said one woman, the actual owner, Stephanie, said this is talking about nine years. Like she survived, but she struggled and continued to struggle through her injuries until it finally got the best of her. The two other ones that were, I guess, a little bit younger are able to survive, but they're still they're still stuck with the trauma of this. Now, as far as what I think happened, I don't know on these. Like I said, conspiracy theories, I can kind of give you a better answer. Unsolved mysteries or the true crime type episodes like this. 
long as you're not going to be a conclusion, I am still kind of skeptical on Steve, the other brother that was there earlier. He says he comes in earlier to grab some. He's not supposed to work that day. He comes to grab something. He leaves. Sees two men walking in with a suitcase. Um, I don't know what kind of suitcase it is, but I don't know. I just think that would have been suspicious to me. Like maybe, like especially I'm my family's in there. I see two guys walking in at eight o'clock in the morning with a suitcase. Um, they look out of place. I just feel like I would either follow them in or at least kind of keep an eye out to listen for something. I I don't I don't I don't like it. I think that's the conspiracy part in me. I don't know what it is. Maybe there's some something more to it. Like I said, his um, I think that Stephanie was his sister. Um, maybe there was something to go with that. Um, I honestly don't know, but I don't like it. I don't have a good feeling about Steve. Like I said, I couldn't tell you exactly what it is. Whether he owed money and that was that he gave them the plans and everything where everything was or it was a revenge for some family type drama. I mean, we could go down a giant rabbit hole, but I don't think it was random. Um, I'm not saying Steve necessarily did it, but something something about like I said, him just coming in early, grabbing something, and then leaving right as they're walking in, I just, I just don't like it. Like I said, and if you're listening and you're innocent, I'm sorry. But that's just the that's just the conspiracy theorist in me. Something about that whole situation, um, I just don't like. Um, but other than that, like I said, it's that's just one of those that you just really don't know. I mean, you could go down a hundred different rabbit holes. Um, as always, like I said, I'd love to hear what you think happened, but. This is just one of those that, I mean, use just a hundred different ideas. They all sound good. They all sound right. We really don't know. Um, this case actually is still open. Um, a $25,000 award exists for any information that can help identify the men responsible for this crime, um, which is interesting. Um, you can call Crime Stoppers or text your information and you will remain anonymous if somehow some way you actually do know something you were in this area in the 1990s something just rings a bell like said this is actually still open but for now these men continue to get away with it they may not even be in the country anymore it's a good chance they probably did get away to texas but there's always a possibility that they went north or left to right and not south and they're still among us today like a lot of other these true crime stories, these unsolved mysteries, there's a lot of people that do crazy things and get away with it. And somehow, some way, they're still walking among us today. That is all I got for today. Really hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Patrick Simpson. If you have any kind of wild ideas of what you think might have happened here, any kind of conspiracies, anything that doesn't seem right to you, said I love the engagement. I love always reaching out and talking about this. So if you have anything I didn't discuss, anything that doesn't seem right, any kind of theories, as always, you can hit me up on there and tell me what you think. If you haven't subscribed, take a quick second just to click that button. And if you haven't left a review on Apple or iTunes, really appreciate it if you take a quick second just to leave an honest review. For the new people that join um, can kind of get an idea of what the podcast is like. 
And we'll be back next Monday with a very new episode. My name is Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranormal.